0: can Now imagine my own team is like a football team, right? With different transfer yeah. values. And as a manager, I kind yeah. of think now, do I invest in youth and apprentices and new school yeah. leavers, or do you invest in yeah. high value, experienced consultants
1: that can give you more yeah. quickly? There's a whole thing you can look at it. Absolutely. You can, right. you
0: can yeah. value your team. You can do that. You can,
1: you absolutely can. So this is kind of exactly the journey that I went through when I first noticed this. I was like, this makes me think about my company in a whole different way. The next evolution of this was to say, but how does this work from the employees perspective?
2: Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D
0: podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JGA Recruitment Group, Specialist HR Recruiters. Now whether you're listening to this for the first time or the hundredth time, let me say thank you for joining me today, especially if you want to understand why HR leaders are not the CEOs, because that's something we're going to be discussing today with my great guest, a fellow recruiter as well, one of the first we've had on the show. So I'm really, really excited by this interview because I'm joined by CareerPoint CEO, Steve McIntosh. Now, Steve is a business owner, a chartered accountant, an HR professional qualified who has over 17 years experience in running his own successful recruitment firm. So I suspect we're going to have plenty to talk about today. Steve began his career with global accounting firm KPMG, and then when he qualified as a chartered accountant, he transferred to the Cayman Islands in September 2001. In 2004, he founded financial services recruitment firm, CML, which has grown to become one of the most successful recruitment firms in the entire Caribbean region. Now inspired by a passion for helping people and companies perform at their best, he has dedicated to himself to the study and practice of human resources qualifying in 2013 as a global professional in HR. And he's used that experience and and that qualification as CEO at CareerPoint, which is an online coaching platform, to really bring his two-part mission to life. One is to help a million young people advance in their careers. And two is to level the playing field for underrepresented groups. And we're going to get into both of those missions a little bit later on in the show. Now, we're going to find out as well why HR is often the most undervalued function in every business. So if you've just heard me say that and you've said to yourself, yes, it is. I hear what you're saying, Nick, then stay tuned. We're going to find out exactly why that is, as I welcome Stephen McIntosh to the HR and podcast. How are you feeling today?
1: Wow, that was a brilliant introduction, Nick.
0: Ah, delights That's to have to you. you.
1: I, I would describe myself as a recovering recruiter. <laughs> so 17 glorious years in that industry helping people advance in their careers by changing job. And now I'm all about helping people advance in their careers, staying with the employer that they're with.
0: Love that. Love that. Love that. It was two decades for me this year. So we're, we're in similar, similar kind of fields in terms man. of experience. But well let's I know you could probably describe what recruitment is very easily, but let's ask a slightly different question. A question I ask all my guests what do the words human resources mean to you?
1: Human resources is the most important function in any business. Unfortunately, it's also often one of the most undervalued functions. So I describe myself as a zealous convert nice. to human resources because I started out my career as a chartered accountant. I was young, I needed the money. I, you know, I'd fallen in with a bad crowd in high school. <laughs> and I get I, you know, that 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 it was never a good fit for me, but I was just I guess I was just good with numbers, and that was the extent of vocational advice where, where I grew up was, you're good with numbers, you should be an accountant. But actually, I'm pretty good with people too, and HR never came up. But I, I went to business school, and no one really mentioned HR as a function, right? And when I started my career with KPMG, we, had a, we actually had a really good HR department. But it wasn't something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And then I started my own company in 2004, and, and it, took, it took many years. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work running your own company, right? It is, yeah,
0: absolutely
1: right. And you make a lot of mistakes and you find, but it took me a few years to figure out. It's all about the people. That's the job of the CEO. It's all about helping people be successful because that's what drives the success of your company. And that was a real, I had this experience as a CEO where there was a, where a member of my team felt passed over through advancement. We'd been planning to open a new office in Bermuda and we hired a chap from Michael Page to head up this office. And the next day, this, this young recruitment consultant, uh, who was about 28, he was, he was here in the Cayman Islands, living high on the hook to me. <laughs> so I thought he was living the dream, but he resigned. And it turned out that he was very unhappy that he hadn't had the chance to head up this office. And I thought, that's really strange, because I had no idea that you had that level of ambition. Because you leave the office every day at five o'clock. And yeah. you don't come to me with ideas and you, you're not volunteering to lead projects. You're not doing any of the things that I would have expected someone to do if they had this ambition. And I realized that this was entirely my fault. The reason he'd never expressed his ambition is that I'd never asked. And the reason he hadn't been doing any of the things that I expected someone to do is that I'd never told him what those things were. Talking to friends and clients, I realized that that wasn't just my company. It's the same in just about every company. Most companies don't have the career advancement conversations, and yet that is what their people want, right? Yeah. Everybody wants to people. improve their situation. The 87% of millennials say that career advancement is very or extremely important to them in a role. Yeah. But our research has shown that only 30% of younger folks have well-defined short-term career goals, And only about 35% have a good understanding of how to achieve them. And it's that 70% that remains. Those are the people that we end up working with as recruitment consultants, right? Because there's only one reason anyone ever comes to a recruitment consultant. It's not to find a job. It's to advance their career.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not always, people always assume people move and they're still associated with advancement for financial reasons, but it's much, that's a it's far too simplified way of looking at things. Of course, absolutely. remuneration is part of that that algorithm, but actually it's much more about respect, feeling like you're, you're feeling your value, understanding your value, knowing you can progress. And there's a whole many of things that come with that. But interestingly, you talk there about, the advancement of individuals, but it's not limited to individuals. Companies actually want that as well. Like right? companies want to advance, employees want to advance. So everyone's trying to go for the same goal, and yet we, there's kind of a miscommunication sometimes. There's a, there's a gap there, which you've obviously identified. Yeah.
1: yeah, I call it "don't ask, don't tell," right? It's just there's no there's no there's no discussion, and when if there is a discussion, it's often kind of off the cuff and it's not. So what what we've developed is kind of a, a holistic framework that helps. Millennials and, and Gen Z employees understand how career advancement works. And what we do is we we break the idea of value down into its constituent parts. So we first of all talk about a framework that we call the employee value curve, which is all about how people create value in a company. Yeah. Right. And that's what it's all about at the end of the day. You can define value in different ways. Some companies would define it in terms of dollars or pounds some companies would define it in terms of a benefit to society, if it's a if it's a charity or a non-profit, right? So there's different ways of defining value, but at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And what's interesting is, so we do uh, workshops with clients where we brainstorm this idea of value. And we start off with a, a question that I think is quite revealing, and often it's kind of an aha moment for clients. We ask them, and it's, it's kind of a social experiment for me as well. I'm I'm really interested in the answer to this question because we're always meeting with leadership groups, C suite, senior management, sometimes new managers. And the question we put to them is what percentage of your company's value comes from its people, right? Yeah. And it's always interesting. The answer is almost always between, in fact, it's always between 80 and
0: 100%. Yeah.
1: And right away, that should set alarm bells ringing, right? The most common number is 90%. Right. So they're always kind of like, well, it's almost all of it, but there's some other things like there's IT and there's buildings and stuff on the (laughs) balance sheet. But it's almost all of the value comes from the people. So, you know, as well as I do. So my next question is, okay, well, if all of the value pretty much in your company comes from the people, what is the company doing to increase the value for each person? Because it's a win-win to do that. What are the mechanisms at work here? And what do we mean when we talk about employees creating value? So the next thing we do in these workshops is to brainstorm the ways that employees create value. The interesting thing about that is that it always comes out the same way. The reason is that there is only a short list of ways that employees can, in theory, create value. It's the hours they work. It's the ideas they contribute. It's the relationships that they bring to the table. It's the leadership that they show, not just in terms of managing other people, but showing leadership through followership, for example. It's the expertise that they apply, their knowledge, and the knowledge they share with other people. So there is actually a finite number of ways that they can create value. And once employees understand all of the ways, it's much easier to dial up the value. And that's the win-win. They dial up the value they create for the company and they that's what drives their career as well as the company's success.
0: It's interesting. I I do think there's been a, a big shift I mean, it's 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 not a it's not necessarily an instant shift, but I think we we've gone from a you know years gone by there had been a a process where you had a job, you did your hours, and it was just kind of expected, and you know it was very much a command and conquer type of a, a way of leadership. Yeah. We've shifted a lot from that, and obviously, it's clearly you ask questions of yourself you know, right from when that employee left the example he gave at the start of this of this interview. Mm-hmm. And he said, actually, I've got to ask myself questions. Why is he left? Actually, I had failures here. And you're clearly asking questions all the time. You mentioned then the employee value curve. Well, you've written a brilliant book, which I will, you know, I've, I've actually read it. It's, it's great. Loads of really interesting insights and um, and theories in there as well. But something you mentioned in there, as you say, the employee value curve, and you, the, the book is titled The Employee Value Curve 1.0, is, and I quote, the unifying theory of human resources. Tell me a little bit more about that, because if that's the unifying theory, it'd be interesting. We've got an HR listener group here, listens to this, and they'll probably have a different view on, on, on what the unifying theory is. But why is it the unifying theory for you?
1: Yeah, it's uh, if there's one thing that podcast audiences love, it's talking about charts. Yeah, I've I've right well, takeaway. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that irony is not charts, lost yeah. on me. We're talking about it's a podcast, and we're talking about a chart. But here's how this came about, and it was from my experience of pitching recruitment services. And the point I was making to clients is that there's a wide range between the best employees that you have and the worst employees, right? And that range is, all, if you think about the value that's created by the best employee you ever had, it's probably many multiples of their salary, many multiples of their cost to the business, yeah. right? So good employees create a tremendous amount of value for a company. At the other end of the spectrum, underperforming and disengaged employees, it's not that they don't create very much value. It's often that they actually destroy value, right, in various ways. Maybe they have a toxic impact on morale, on their their teammates, maybe they're causing good people to want to leave because they don't wanna be around them. Maybe they're sucking in too much time from management and not allowing management to get on with their job. Maybe they're making mistakes and they're losing the company business, which could, is going to be many magnitudes of their salary or their cost to the business, right? So the range between the value that's created by each employee is very, very wide.
0: Yeah. So when clients
1: used to say to me, you know, why should we spend $10,000 on a recruitment fee? I can, I can get six candidates by sticking an ad online. Yeah. My response to that yeah. was to say, go ahead and do that and then come back and I'll share my best three candidates with you. And my job is to bring a candidate to you that is so valuable that it's more than our fee would be right? And if you think about the value that's created, employees don't just last one year, your fee is a one-off, but the employee could stay with the company Absolutely. for years. So for this, sure. this, the idea that our fee might not be worth that, that difference in employee value doesn't make sense, right? So in pitching this, I used to draw this curve. And I was looking at this curve one day, and it occurred to me, I call this my flux capacitor moment after <laughs> back to the future, right? When the guy falls off the toilet and has this idea. And I'm looking at this curve that I used to draw to illustrate this point of like, you know, here is the best employee you ever had all the way on the left of this curve. And it kind of slopes down to the right. And here are the ones that destroy value. And, you know, when I was pitching CEOs and business owners, this always resonated with them. They always had exactly the same experience I did, that there's this wide range, right? And I realized something interesting. I I had this flashback about something, you know, something about the area below a curve, And that's when I realized that if this curve represented all of the employees in a business and the value that they created, and all of the value in the company comes from the people, which, as I said, is what most companies would say, the area under the curve equals the value of the company. And when I realized that, I thought, is that true? Is that, I mean, it's an interesting way. It's a different way to look at the valuation of a company. I'm a chartered accountant, so I'm used to looking at a balance sheet and think, or an income statement, right? Yeah. But no yeah. one had ever pointed out to me that, that the income statement underlying every income statement is something that's much more important. It's human effort. And that's what we're really working on. We're not working on the numbers on a piece of paper, we're working on the human effort and trying to dial up the value as much as we can. And it just creates a completely different, it made me think differently about almost everything I did in the company
0: a couple of questions that come to mind here. The first is mm-hmm. for me, and I did some studying recently in my, uh, I did a master's in professional consulting, and we did a lot of research into flat structures versus meritocratic structures, matrix structures, things like that, mm-hmm. within organizational dynamics. Mm-hmm. The way that you, you're talking there, I'm going to ask a question. I'd be interested to know your response. Do, on that basis, do flat structures work? Are you more in favor of a meritocratic structure where the those that offer the best value in theory then move through quickest? Or is that mm-hmm. too first level, too much of a first way level a level way of looking at it? Is it actually because we're not as leaders extracting the best value out of the the people that aren't performing as best? We're not asking the right questions, therefore they don't have the opportunity to perform it the same way. I don't know. This has come to mm-hmm. my mind thinking as you talk there between yeah. based on that concept does a flat structure
1: work yeah it's a really interesting idea and i think flat structures work well in theory but there yeah. are some problems one of the big problems with a flat structure is that it doesn't give people anywhere to go often yeah right so if 87 percent of millennials and gen z employees want career advancement and your company has a flat structure they may not stay
0: yeah, no, agree. so I
1: think that theoretically, from an operational perspective, the flat structure works quite well because it kind of gives people maximum autonomy. But in practice, the problem is that companies don't associate it with more flexible ways to recognize the value that their employees create. Because the 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 quality of being flat kind of implies that everyone gets treated the same and everybody's yeah. kind of you know it's an egalitarian society and that just doesn't work all that well in theory because if someone's adding a tremendous amount of value they want to be treated differently uh, and accordingly
0: you often find in flat structures as well for the research that i did that the, the best value individuals in the way that you the concepts you put it tend to rise to the top into leadership positions even in a flat structure, you know, people will look up and report and, and change the dynamics of the organization. The second thing that, that came to mind, we're talking about your accounting background and, you know, I'm not an accountant, but obviously it's perhaps a little bit more binary in the way that things work. It works, it doesn't calculate, it does, it's figures, it's numbers, you know, it does it add up. You might have HR professionals listening to this going, yeah, but it's different when you're with people, you know, you can't, It's much harder to calculate whether something's working or an output when you're dealing with human personalities and human behaviors. And yet in your book, you actually say, well, hold on. One thing HR really needs is a theoretical framework like we have Mm -hmm. in accounting. You've described part of that already, but I wonder if you could just take that a level further. Why do you think a theoretical framework could really benefit HR as, as an industry?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is a transition that the HR is going through at the moment. We've talked about how HR is undervalued in many businesses. And my thinking as to why it's so often undervalued is that the C-suite is solving for value, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they, they wake up every morning and they're solving for value. And if there's a department in the business that isn't solving for value, that is going to be a problem, right? Now, again, the company can define value any way they want, Right, that's not for me to say, but it's also not for the HR department to say. So, it's very important that. But in the default in most companies is that they are solving for economic value. Right, you could say we can lament that, we can say it shouldn't be that way, but that is the reality. Yeah, and in fact, it's the legal imperative. Right, that's what fiduciary duty means. That. The legal imperative of the board of directors and the management of the company is to take whatever action is necessary to benefit the shareholders. We can lament, we can say it shouldn't be that way, but it is that way. (laughs) And I think that's why oftentimes HR is undervalued because they're not making this kind of economic argument for the company to invest in people. If the argument is framed as a moral argument that we should invest in people because it's the right thing to do. The company can say, well, that's great, but we actually, you know, we have a business to run here and we're trying to we're trying to become valuable and successful as an organization. It's very important that they so we're saying it's the same thing, but it's framed as an economic argument instead of as a moral imperative. Yeah. Because the moral imperative may not that may that's not a strong sell.
0: That's that leads me to the big question I mentioned in the introduction. And really, I th- you've you've part answered it already, but I'm going to take it a level further. The big mm-hmm. question that I've tackled this in the previous episode of the podcast as well, but if people are the backbone of the company and we're talking about the value that people can bring and it's not necessarily, the value isn't necessarily dictated by seniority. Whatever role you have, if you're a recruitment consultant, you're the top biller, you could have more value than you know an operational manager that's leading that individual in a recruitment example. But then if that's the case, why aren't HR leaders the CEO of businesses? And the question one, I guess, and question two to, to build on to that is, can they be if they reframe the way they pitch what they do, which is kind of where a little bit of where you start to go
1: down that? Absolutely. Yeah. They should be. It is nothing short of weird that they are not. So I had a conversation with the CEO of one of the largest companies in North America over dinner. I didn't know that that was his role. He was okay. just someone who was sitting next to me at dinner. Great, love that. <laughs> and- I love the
0: start of this story already.
1: Yeah. So- and it was a, it was a little embarrassing. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I say it was uh, because you might not have heard of the company either, unless you've spent a lot of time in Canada. But it was Canadian Tire, uh, which is like the Walmart of Canada. It turns okay. out that I'd never heard of. And he he had he said something that was really interesting to me. He said that his job was HR. He said that he he it happened uh, was also an accountant by training, but over the course of his career, that HR had become the focus. That was how he saw his role was as, as HR, right? Yeah. And that's the CEO of a major company. So it's kind of, you can either uh, start off in HR and then become the CEO, or you can become CEO and then get into HR. But either way, if all of the, comp- all of the value in your company is coming from the people, you need to figure out this HR piece. And there's a, so I, I think the short answer is yes. When HR people start to think about value creation and start to get on the same page as the C suite and, and see things from that perspective, that's gonna that's going to accelerate their own career advancement. There's another question that's related to that. So I've just finished an executive MBA. HR was not a subject. There was no module.
0: That is interesting. So I'm I'm online. cutting you off here, but executive that surprised MBA. me. Okay. Wow.
1: So it was all accounting yeah. focused, presumably. We did accounting, finance, marketing, uh, technology. We did 16 different subjects. And I actually had a discussion with one of the professors over lunch one day where I asked him where he thought HR would rank as a business function and importance. And he said, well, it would be one of the most important functions. And my response was, don't you think it should be taught on the MBA? And he said, "Well, that's a good point, and we should look at that." But yeah, I think, so there's two. Moment. Yeah, yeah. So there's two problems with this, right? Because not only are people coming away from courses like that without the training to understand how HR works and how it adds value and why it's important. Yeah. The other problem is that it's a signal to people to say, "Well, HR is not that important."
0: Absolutely. Yeah, can agree more. Right.
1: I should think just hearing that we've be, got a
0: lot of listeners frustrated. To suddenly learn, as I have in real time here, you know that that, that it's not included because it almost seems so sort of like it has to be. I mean, it, you know, most businesses are based on their people. Most companies you are,
1: you know, we, we would
0: consider people yeah, as the most hate, important asset.
1: I hate to, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not denigrating my alma mater here, which was uh, Oxford, by the way. Yeah, but there's no HR faculty, so not only is HR not taught, it's not even a, it's not even a thing that they mm. they teach. There's no faculty. How is the and it's not just Oxford. If you look at every top business school MBA course, look and see which ones offer HR as a subject. Harvard doesn't offer HR as it offers it as an elective, but really it's an elective. You can go your entire career and avoid becoming becoming an expert in accounting, right? Quite easily. Why? Because you have a CFO for that. Can you go your entire career? Can you become CEO of a major company without ever understanding human resources? (laughs) Of course not. It's, you know, it's what every company needs. So it it doesn't make sense to me. I think it needs to change. And I think it's related to this idea of not having any kind of underlying theoretical framework, because the answer I got when I questioned this was, well, what would we teach?
0: Well, let's, let's, let's focus on that just for a second. I know we're going slightly off on a tangent, but I think there's some value in what you've just mentioned, coming from, it's played devil's advocate, from the uh, the professor who said we don't have it, or for whatever reason it might be. Because HR, rec- certainly recently, have suddenly had to hold so many hats to their heads. You know, they, they're suddenly the diversity inclusion experts. They're recruitment experts. They're now uh, responsible for the COVID response within a business. There's so much going on that I do believe that HR has become harder and harder to actually define. You've got organizational development, you've now got software transformation, all coming under this kind of banner of HR. And I think actually if you ask a CEO what the word human resources mean to them, you get a very different response to an HR professional answering the same question. So if you were then going to start encouraging, and I absolutely think we should, getting like MBA programs, including HR in the discussion, where would be the starting point for you? and you know, What angle should they take to make sure it's included in the right way?
1: I mean, I think there's two sides to this. I think that HR as a profession could do more to lay out the economic case.
0: Yeah, agreed.
1: Right. Which, as you mentioned earlier, is not easy, but it's definitely not impossible. Right. There are all kinds of things that are not easy, but we still do them. Yeah. You know we're <laughs> nuclear fission, we're now working on nuclear fusion. That's really difficult stuff, but they're still doing it. One of my, in one of my classes, which ironically was about company valuation, we did a whole case study on valuing a baseball player, a major league baseball player. So if you can, if you can do that exercise for a major league baseball player, you can do that exercise for anyone.
0: Yeah, that's it's gonna look
1: very different, yeah. but it can be done and it needs to be done. Why? So it's not just for the company's benefit, it's for the employee's benefit. Because at the end of the day, what they get from their career is a function of what they create. So the value that you receive as an employee is derived from the value that you create as an employee. That's our whole coaching methodology, is to solve for the value you create because that's what's driving your own career advancement. So that, but there is no existing methodology for this. Sure. So I've read quite widely in a topic called personnel economics, which is the closest thing we get. It is a very difficult, academic, turgid topic, and it's not really, there isn't very much overlap in the Venn diagrams between personnel economics and HR, yeah. but there needs to be more of an overlap. So to me, HR needs to think more like the finance department. It needs to think more like this is what we're solving for. And here is how we do this. There are so many things that they could focus on. And uh, if you can't make this argument about, well, if we're solving for value, here are the priorities so that we're all on the same page, so that we know that what we're going to do is going to add value for the business. That's the, I think that's the change that needs to happen, but it needs to happen in terms of HR professional education, and it needs to happen in business schools, and it needs to happen in companies for yeah. them to insist on a business case.
0: But I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, I mean your, your book actually comes up with a number of these diagrams to really bring this to life. So people are interested in that, I will put a link so people can find out more because it's fantastic. And it's, you do go into this in a lot more detail. What you've left me with, though, is a really interesting image. And I'm so sorry, I'm going to share this because it's it's stuck here as a visualization thing. I'm not just saying a, to underplay what you're saying, but I can now imagine my own team is like a football team, right? With different transfer yeah. values. And as a manager, I kind yeah. of think now, do I invest in youth and apprentices and new school yeah. leavers? Or do you invest in yeah. high value, experienced consultants that can give you more yeah. quickly? There's a whole thing you can look at it. Absolutely. You can, right. you can yeah. value your team. You can do that. You can. You absolutely can.
1: So this is kind of exactly the journey that I went through when I first noticed this. I was like, this makes me think about my company in a whole different way. The next evolution of this was to say, but how does this work from the employee's perspective? And that was when it became the unifying theory. It's when I realized that this is also a theory of career advancement, right? Sure. You can identify that,
0: training requirements, where to
1: invest, exactly. how
0: to develop yeah. the value in, yeah. in inverted commas, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, and so most companies, you know, most companies have this kind of top-down value creation paradigm. Yeah. Right where the leaders allocate the work out and try and get everyone to create as much value as they can. But actually, it works much better if you have a bottom-up value creation culture where everybody understands how they create value and why they should dial up that value as, as much as possible because it's in their own interests. Sure. I mean, it's, it makes
0: total, for me, I've had that aha moment You given it to me on this podcast, which is great. I really enjoyed that.
2: Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more.
0: Going to take the conversation a slightly different direction because there's a, there's a link I want to direct people to in the show notes, which is an article you wrote on Medium. It's a really, really interesting article, but it's very relevant. And this is a, a real shift in thinking now. So apologies for, for people that are still digesting what we've just discussed. I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. But I think this is incredibly relevant for... HR professionals that are feeling burnout at the moment have suddenly had to adapt to remote working practices, don't necessarily want to go back to the office either in, in all instances, or they're going back to a hybrid way of working. You wrote an article on Medium titled, How to Advance and Enhance Your Career When Working Remotely. Now, this is a challenge. I've had a lot of HR professionals come to me with have had good conversations with Nick, and I'm not, in, I'm not in view anymore. How do they know what I'm doing? The trust question comes up a lot more. So... I've got to ask you as the expert here, and it's, it's a brilliant article, so do, do give it a read. I'll say the link put in the show notes. But can you tell me more about what the challenges are for HR professionals who are working remotely and how they can overcome them to still, going back to that advancing career section, still advance themselves within a the business?
1: Yeah, I think the big challenge is the same as the challenge that there is in a normal working environment. It's just amplified, right? So it becomes much more of a problem. And that problem is not taking personal ownership for your career advancement, right? So we have something that we call in CareerPoint, the three-step plan for guaranteed career success. Okay. Do you tell? This was mentioned in the article. And it's interesting to think about like where this breaks down, right? So when you hear it, your reaction is going to be, well, that's obvious. But if you flip it around and think, well, how many people actually do this? You're going to have a very different answer, right? So you're going to say it's obvious, but no one does it. So three-step plan for guaranteed career success. You ready? Go for it. Pens are ready, okay. everyone.
0: If not, you can record back at this. <laughs> season. Go for it. Step
1: one, tell your boss that you want to advance in your career, right? Step two, ask them what you need to do to advance in your career. Step three, do it.
0: There you go. Right? You, if you didn't quite get all so, that, you can rewind that section and play that little bit back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's guaranteed to work, right? Yeah. But where does it go wrong? It goes wrong at the easiest part, which is step one. So, and here's the best evidence for this. I ran a company for 17 years and I wrote a book about career advancement that all of my employees at least claimed to have read. And how many people tried this? How many people came to me and told me that they wanted to advance in their career and asked me what they had to do and then did it? Not very many.
0: Let's play a little bit of devil's advocate with this, then, because as a recruiter yourself, Steve, you'll you'll know this because I do. One of the biggest reasons people change positions is also because they either don't respect, they don't like the way they are managed. Okay, and often people will leave because they yeah. want to get a different manager. They, you know, they love the job, they love the sector, but actually the manager isn't needing them. If that's the manager responsible for their career advancement, how would you suggest they overcome that challenge if they feel they're not necessarily getting the support that they should be getting in order to even yeah. achieve that advancement in the first place?
1: So I have a theory that I can't prove yet. But I plan- <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm working on the research. My theory is that 90% of people think that their boss is an idiot. Okay. That's a high statistic. Right. It's a high statistic.
0: It'd be interesting. 90% of our <laughs> listeners are going, Yes, that's me. Yeah, that's me.
1: Everybody's thinking, Yeah, my boss isn't an it? And I think part of it is because familiarity breeds contempt, as they say. Yeah. Right? Is that the longer you work with someone, the more their kind of personal quirks and, but no two people see things alike. Right? And a big part of what we do in Career Point Coaching is to help young people work on their relationships. How do we do that? By asking them to take personal responsibility for the relationship. It takes two to tangle. There are two people in every relationship. Sure. And if you just say, well, it's not my fault. The problem is my boss. There are a couple of problems with that. First of all, that's not going... You can't change your boss, right? You can only change your own behavior. You can only... Like, that's all you can do. And if you don't, and you don't advance in your career because of your boss... That is not a problem for your boss. It's a problem for you. And in every relationship, there is a lot more that you could do to improve that relationship. And it's essential that you do because you will not advance. Having a dissonant relationship with your boss is completely toxic to your advancement. Yeah, for sure. Right. And a lot of people don't seem to fully appreciate that, that they are just kind of You know, well, it's not my fault. My boss is an idiot. And they just, you know, they don't get it. And well, the thing is that your boss has been made a boss for a reason. And they're not perfect either. So don't hold your boss to a standard that you yourself would not expect to be held to. When you, when your boss, when you don't see eye to eye, you need to learn how to make a strong case for what you believe the company should do but then you need to do something that we talk about a lot in career point coaching which is agree disagree and commit which means that you've expressed your disagreement but you've said we're going in a different direction someone else this is for someone else to decide the decision has been made and now my job is to do the best thing i can to support the decision that has been made in the team sure right it's not to sabotage the decision to prove that you were right which is what a lot of people would do. Absolutely. But that doesn't was, it, work.
0: It but... breeds resentment and, and contempt as well, right? And exactly. It doesn't get you anywhere in terms of career advancement. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And you, you brought a little bit into the discussion there, some of the work you do at CareerPoint. Definitely something I want to get into before we, we finish the interview here. So before we jump into your mission statement, which I'd love you to talk about in more detail, I think that a lot of companies and leaders and managers out there don't necessarily value the need for career advancement, coaching, training, programs. Yeah. And there's a very clear yeah. reason why I haven't called this the HR podcast. It's called the HR L&D podcast. I'm a mass, I'm a huge, mm. be passionate about learning and development. I'm always learning something and trying to get my team to learn something and develop everyone around me. Because I think learning is just the secret to happiness, really. You're always trying to evolve and move forward, but it's, that's my personal view. Why in your view, do you think it's absolutely critical that, that, that we do have learning and coaching programs? Of course, CareerPoint point deliver mm. Some, some brilliant solutions themselves but also why do you think that companies don't value them like we both believe they should
2: oh where
1: to begin yeah um, I know it's a big topic so, right? <laughs> I think the first thing is that coaching isn't a new thing right we didn't invent coaching coaching's been around for a while but there's a big gap because 90% of the money that companies spend on coaching is spent at senior management level and above right and where coaching can benefit people the most as much earlier in their careers right so this is our hope so we've created this platform to democratize coaching and allow anyone to access it which by the way means a very low price point we had to figure out like how can we make this affordable to everyone so our coaching programs start at only 80 pounds per employee which is a rounding error <laughs> like if we if we can increase the value of an employee by one percent, it's going to cover the, the cost of the coaching It's sure. just you know it's 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 the cost of some lunches. I think the second thing is that a lot that companies might react by saying, and they sometimes do, they react by saying, well, why should we spend money on our employees' career advancement? And there are a couple of very important reasons. Number one, that. You can't succeed as a company unless your employees do, right? 100%. So if you turn it around and say, well, if I were to say, will your company succeed if you hold your employees back? Every CEO would say, well, of course not. So we're really just saying the opposite. Let's help your company succeed by making your employees successful. How does that sound? <laughs> that makes all the sense in the world. Why is it called career advancement coaching? Because that's what people want, right? If you go to an employee, this, this was kind of the big thing that i learned was that if you want to maximize the value of your team you don't go to each person in the team and say hey we need to work on your value and we need to improve your performance the employee is going to react negatively to that it's going to be counterproductive but it's what sure. most people instinctively do right they go to them and say well you should really you should do this you should do that but if you go to them and say how would you like to talk about your career advancement That's a conversation everyone wants to have. All of a sudden, you've got their their attention, right? Now they're saying, absolutely, please, let's do talk about our career advancement. And that's the open door to say, well, here's how career advancement works, right? Let's talk about what's next for you in the company. And let's talk about what you need to do to get there, whether it's improving relationships, especially with your boss, right? Be be a, a constructive team member but also understanding all of the levers of your value to the team, contributing ideas, working hard, of course, but that's table stakes, having good relationships with colleagues, with third parties, with customers. This is how you create value as an employee. And when you see it laid out like that, nearly every single person that goes through our coaching says they have the same kind of aha moment where they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I can imagine. One lady came through our coaching and went into the HR manager the next day and told the HR manager that she'd realized that she'd been doing everything wrong for the last four years, <laughs> which when, I, when, the HR manager, to... exactly, when the HR manager called me and told me that, I was like, wow, we maybe saved someone from career disaster and set them on a much better track. So we're kind of teaching people to fish, if you like, rather than giving them the fish. Yeah. We're teaching them the framework and the levers so that they can add value autonomously.
0: I think there's something, uh, another part this algorithm, this calculation, which I, I know you'll be aware of from your recruitment background, but as a recruiter in me, I would say, well, look, actually, whether or not, the tra- let's hope the training works and adds value from what you're delivering. But actually, there's also a huge amount of value in just an employee feeling like they're being invested in. But it's native pound, they don't necessarily need to know the price point of entry, right? They just need to know Absolutely. that my company is considering me, yeah. they're investing in me, they want to see me advance. Now, what the output is of that training, we can we can look at in a different a different situation. But the reality is investing in your staff doesn't just only make the employee perform better than invest in, increase their wellness, their happiness. But from an employer perspective, there's a huge amount of value in there, and the retention of those employees, saving on recruitment fees, the likes of you and I, because you're replacing people that don't feel invested in. And actually, one of the yeah. biggest ways to improve your, you know, your your retention metrics is to invest in your staff in the right way and as you said a career point it doesn't have to be expensive you can be intelligent in the way that you do these things but i think there's there's a lot more to it than just the output of the employees the training of that employee it's it's, it's win-win in so many other different facets that i think often are overlooked
1: you're absolutely right and one of the sort of interesting components as well is i think that our coaching kind of as an outlet for employees this wasn't this wasn't something that was built in by design, but this is what I, this is what I've realised is one of the reasons that employees appreciate it so much is that it's an opportunity to talk about themselves for a solid hour with someone who has no hidden agenda and yeah. no skin in the game. They're on the they're on the employee's side, and where else would they get that from? Right? They can't really sit and talk to their and pour their heart out to their own boss a lot of the time. It's not always comfortable to do that and speak openly with your peers and colleagues. You, you might not be able to talk to family members about it. Would anyone really want someone pouring their heart to them for, for an hour at home? You know, we, we have families and lives. And, so it's just having someone to, to talk to and bounce ideas off is just invaluable.
0: Yeah, well, it ties into so that mindfulness right. piece, which is absolutely top of a, an HR agenda as well. Let's mm-hmm. be fair. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit, uh, while we've got time, about uh, your mission statement. Your mission is to help a million young people advance their career. Tell mm-hmm. me what, about what motivates that mission and, and actually how you, how you are succeeding against that goal.
1: We wanted to do something that was scalable, right? And that's kind of another unique aspect of our coaching platform is that we have, right now we have 50 coaches. They're all around the world. The States, Canada, UK, South Africa. We even have a coach in Singapore. They're all over the world in different time zones. And we knew that we couldn't have any kind of impact unless we found a way to scale this model. And that's been one of the most exciting parts of the career point journey is just the amazing people that we've attracted to become career point coaches. It's not a small under, it's not easy to become a career point coach. It takes, it's a huge investment of time. And what the reason that people do it, so we, we, uh, tra- we do training, courses roughly once a quarter they're oversubscribed we have more people who want to become and the reason that people want to become career point coaches is because they want to give something back they want to share their experience so you have to be you have to have more than 10 years of leadership experience ideally a professional qualification or a postgraduate degree we look for experienced leaders because we want that kind of perspective so that when the employees are receiving the coaching they're hearing from someone who has been through. A successful career themselves and can relate to this person. So it's industry agnostic. We have coaches from all different industry sectors, from all different backgrounds. That's a really been a really inspirational part from us. So, so the million young people that we want to help, that's a, an aspirational target. We we'd expect to get there within five years in an ideal world. We only started. Almost a year and a half ago was when we we formed the company. So we're still a relatively new company, but we're making good progress to that goal. We're working with lots of big companies. We're working with employees from all over the world. And the second component of our mission statement to level the playing field is something that I've been working on in in various forms for many years through involvement with gender equality groups and uh, minority advocacy groups. And uh, that's, that's very important to us. It's, you know, I... You might not think of me as, as someone who's a minority, but you might be able to tell I wasn't exactly born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I went to state school. I think this coaching framework is extremely important to, to people who haven't benefited from mentorship, which is most people, by the way. 80% yeah. of young people say that they don't yeah. have anyone they consider a mentor. And my parents were fantastic parents and worked really hard, but they, they didn't work in corporate environments. My, my father was an engineer in local government. My mother was a college lecturer. They didn't work in corporate environments. So they weren't telling me from day one how to advance in my career. right? But we want everybody to have access to the skills and tools that, that, that allow them to, to make the most of their own careers.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think I, both both of us have come through some similar kind of uh, journeys. I think, and uh, I, I definitely could have benefited from mentorship at a younger age for sure. It's much harder to self mentor ever at a young age. Try and try. It's not too late. Never uh... It's not too late. No, no, absolutely right. <laughs> Actually, through this podcast, I've I've got one now Michael, uh Yeah, who I've, I've interviewed on on a previous show works with me, which is which has been great. So oh, yeah. I know also, and um, you're talking about sort of. Achieving that goal, you've actually recently signed, and I've got this wrong, and I read this in the news. You've recently signed a relationship or a, um, an agreement with Oxford Research Partners, and you're looking, if there are people listening to this, I understand you're looking for yeah. some companies to support your latest research. You'll know more than I do. Apologies, I've read this in the news report. So sure, no. tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for, and if there's anyone listening that may be interested, how they can get involved.
1: Yeah, so we have uh, we went to the University of Oxford's Kellogg College to ask if to ask them to share with us some of the research that had been done on career advancement. And what we found was that that there wasn't a whole heck of a lot, surprisingly, right? considering how important a topic this is. And so we asked if they would partner with us to conduct the research. So right now we're halfway through it. So the research program spans about a year. And the purpose is to investigate career advancement pathways, Attitudes and mechanisms, particularly among younger folks. So the the age range for the study participants is between twenty five and thirty five. So we're going to be doing coaching with a total of around two hundred young people and following them to see what happens. So what's the impact of the coaching? What are their attitudes towards career advancement? Are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? And really uh, trying to figure out how we can how we can dial up career advancement across the board. So we're working with. Companies in the UK and the United States and here in the Cayman Islands whose employees receive coaching, a four-week coaching program, and our good friends in Oxford do a post-intervention survey, pre-intervention survey to see how much we've moved the dial between those times. So there, there is a modest cost to become involved in this, but it's, it's, it's exciting and uh, I'd encourage any of your listeners who are interested in getting involved from an academic perspective or just because they want to know the dial in their own companies to reach out.
0: And what's the best way for them to reach out if they've, uh, you know, they've suddenly gone, actually, yeah, this, this really speaks to me. What's the best way to contact you?
1: Well, they can email me directly on steve at careerpoint.com.
0: Fantastic. I'll make sure that link is also in the show notes. So don't worry, if you haven't got a pen to write that down or you forget it, go to the show notes. I'll put the link in there along with the many other links, which we'll go through in just a moment as well. But I also understand just from news again, uh, Steve, that you've added some pretty influential HR people to the board over at CareerPoint as well. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about those recent additions because it's yeah, we've... It's, it's quite the lineup.
1: I know we've got we've just got a phenomenal advisory board really and it's uh, it always amazes me that as soon as people hear about our mission and I tell them about the framework everyone's so they're just like yeah this is absolutely this is so exciting and so needed so we've got lots of big names in in HR, Lars Schmidt, Laurie Rudeman, Jennifer McClure, Carmen Hudson, Professor William Scott Jackson who's a member of the academic team in Oxford Kathy Harvey, who's uh, assistant dean at site business school. So we've got, we've got a real heavy-hitting advisory boards who are uh, you know, keeping us in line.
0: And of course, for those who want to find out more, you need to go to careerpoint.com. Now we're going to open the HR L&D vault. Opening the L&D vault. These are some short, sharp questions for you, Steve. So I'm uh, going to start with this one first. In hindsight, what is one thing you now know that you wish you'd known when you began your career?
1: I wish I'd known that it takes more than just being smart, that career advancement is mostly about relationships.
0: Right. Perfect. If you give one piece of advice to the world, what would it
1: be? Oh wow. I would say start taking HR seriously and start investing in it is the most important function in the business.
0: Right. And this might be quite relevant to what you do. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give to a younger self just starting out in the world of work?
1: You know, ironically, I would probably tell myself to, to work a bit less okay. because I, I spent the first 10 years of my career working extremely long hours and, you know, it worked out in the end. But I probably missed out on a lot of experiences that I, I should have, that, that I could have taken advantage of if I had been less focused on my career.
0: Yeah, you know what? If I was asked the same question, I'd probably give the same response. Uh, Graham Ravenscroft, previous guest on the show, has helped me see that and I'm working on that now. So I totally appreciate that. Perhaps I'm not quite as far ahead in the journey as you are, but uh, I fully agree. What's the guiding principle or behaviour you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? I think
1: it's just caring for the team. That's a great starting point because if you genuinely care, then you'll keep trying to find what works and it's just a great place to start from. Whereas... Leaders who really don't care, that's, they're not going to attract. The, the, the only thing you really need to be a leader is a follower, right? And if you don't care about your team, they're, you're not going to have anyone following you. Yeah. So the more you care about the people in your team, I think the more successful you'll be.
0: Very hard to disagree with that point. I'm going to finish with a slightly more light-hearted question, only because I read this, and I'm going to ask, ask you to share that. I know the answer, but listeners won't. If you could share the same story, which is about the funniest mistake you made when you first started out, In work and a certain lesson you learned, I'll I'll relate it back to KPMG just to to jog the memory.
1: Yeah, I forgot to ask you not to ask us. (laughs) (laughs) So, in my very first week with KPMG in Newcastle upon Tyne in 1998, we had a a night out on the Friday night, which was the end of the kind of orientation week, and one of my colleagues dared me to drink a flaming zambuca without putting the flame out, and I literally burned my lips off.
0: You literally had a bit of time off work as a result, didn't you, as well, when you recovered?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was off for the next week, but <laughs> I didn't go home. I did not go home. So I stayed out for the rest of the night, and it wasn't until the morning that I realized the damage. I think become.
0: you've summarized that HR people are also very resilient. They're daring, <laughs> they're, you know, all those things as well. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Stephen McIntosh. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course, if those who want to find out more, I'm going to put in the show notes, a link to the careerpoint.com website, a link to Stephen's ebook, which can also be found on Amazon his LinkedIn profile, his email address. I'll even put a link to the Medium article, which is all about how to advance your career when working remotely. There's loads more besides. So thank you ever so much for joining me today on today's show. And of course, if you are an HR or l professional listening to this podcast, and you have a requirement in HR that needs some support. Actually, you can either contact Steve if you're in the Caribbean, or you can contact myself here in the UK. We can both probably support you with the HR requirement. Contact myself or my team at www.jgarecruitment.com of course, just leaves me to say a huge thank you again to Steve for joining me today. And thank you to all of you, my wonderful listeners for joining me again on the show. I look forward to bringing you the next episode real soon. Thanks again.
2: Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes in the meantime to make sure you never miss a future episode please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels till next time